You're listening to Policy Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. In this episode, our cyber team take us through their latest project, Mapping Conditions in Rakhine State. The research used satellite imagery to analyse conditions in Rakhine for potential returning Rohingya refugees. But first up, the last of our special coverage of Aspie's Future Warfare Conference. Our roving reporter Brendan Nicholson analyses the key messages from Angus Campbell's keynote address. It's refreshing and valuable that Australia's Defence Force Chiefs are willing to speak publicly and in forthright fashion about our nation's strategic future, threats we face and strengths we can develop. In a speech to Aspie's War in 2025 International Conference, Australia's Defence Force Chief, General Angus Campbell, warned that Western democracies risk being outmaneuvered by totalitarian powers, unrestrained by rules and willing to use information campaigns, cyber operations, theft of intellectual property, coercion and propaganda to weaken them. General Campbell said this new, modernised version of political warfare may have already begun. And he quoted Leon Trotsky's observation that you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. General Campbell also said he sensed a renewed concern in the world that state-on-state conflict could occur and set out some sobering assumptions about the likely nature of such a conflict should it happen. First, in capability development terms, 2025 is essentially today and we'll be fighting with today's Australian Defence Force and our interagency partners. Second, I expect we'll be in alliance and coalition. Australia has never fought alone, and it's the worst place to be in a war. Thirdly, any conflict will last longer than we anticipate, and will cause many more casualties, military and sadly civilian, than we expect. And in material terms, as major platforms are lost or disabled, they probably won't be replaced in any militarily useful time frame. Finally, our commitment to war will be the last time we have control of the conflict dynamic. My point is, state-on-state war is the last and worst-case scenario one that the Australian Defence Force must prepare for, but which we should all strive to avoid. General Campbell explained how Western nations could be ill-prepared for such a conflict because they had, decades ago, rejected key concepts of political warfare as they demanded and expected greater transparency, scrutiny and critique of government. We've embraced our Western virtue and, at the same time, contrasted it with the willingness and increasing ability of other states to control information, people, and events. Typically, these states cluster at the other end of the spectrum, where the people serve the state, as too does the law and all the other elements and institutions of society and state. States with limited or no built-in constraints, and which often rely on deception for survival. These are the states that, as I said earlier, are better able to harness political warfare methodologies. They know how to align and control all the instruments and potential of the state to serve its purposes. Often built on the reality or rhetoric of revolution 
and looking out to the other as enemy, their conception of war is markedly different. They see war in much broader terms. Its reach extends from what we see as peace right through to nuclear war. General Campbell said that in a world that was becoming more connected, these activities range from information campaigns, cyber operations and theft of intellectual property to coercion and propaganda. Such activities might be so unexpected and targeted nations that they might not even be recognised as the start of a major conflict. For these states, the strategic landscape requires a never-ending struggle. It's a struggle that has been maintained throughout history and it's a struggle that's happening right now. Today, a new modernised version of political warfare has emerged. It mixes the old with the new. In a world that's becoming more connected, these activities range from information campaigns, cyber operations and theft of intellectual property to coercion and propaganda, grey zone operations that subvert, erode and undermine, breaking international rules and norms, but ones that, in the eyes of the targeted state, fall short of requiring a war response. General Campbell cited the Ukraine crisis in 2014 as an example of the Russian approach to the advanced stages of political warfare. We saw masked Russian special forces, the little green men, and Russian-backed para paramilitary groups seize buildings and infrastructure in Crimea. This masked warfare was a nod to Soviet-style disruption, but it was also accompanied by computer attacks, manipulation of social and mass media, collapse of the national financial system, and other deceptive operations. Together, they paralyzed the Ukrainian government and the international community. No effective action could or was able to be taken. On this, it's worth pointing to recent analysis by Hassan Susan from the Beyond the Horizon International Strategic Studies Group. Among Russia's overt direct and indirect actions, Susan lists energy blackmail, economic manipulation, and white propaganda as well as military buildup in various eastern locations. Russia's covert direct and indirect actions are no less broad. There's black propaganda and diplomatic support to oppositions, cyber and troll attacks, mobilizing local communities and arming civilians, exporting corruption and employing Trojan horses. Meanwhile, at the time, the only covert action in the NATO column was cyber defense. And back then, it was accompanied by a question mark. Instead, NATO and EU counteractions have, according to Susan, been based primarily on public diplomacy, strategic communication, and limited economic sanctions and assurance measures. It's this environment that has some suggesting that we need to reconceptualize our understanding of conflict. The character of war, they claim, is clearly changing. In this worldview, war is likely to be less about open conflict and the use of kinetic force. It will be about undermining adversaries with no domain off limits. And war is now. It will always be political warfare and it will occasionally become violent. This is a very challenging worldview for many of us. As I've said, we believe, and I say rightly, that peace should always be the natural state. We distinguish sharply between peace and war. 
General Campbell said it was important that those at such a conference discussed and reflected on such ideas. But it's important that here, at a conference like this, discussing war in 2025, these ideas are discussed and reflected upon because they raise important questions, questions that many of you, I suggest, need to consider and eventually we all need to answer. Questions such as, are we indeed too rigid in our conception of war? What parts of our state deter or defend us from modern forms of political warfare? Can modern open democracies even consider conducting political warfare? Will the brinkmanship that's essentially a component of political warfare inevitably drive us to violent conflict? Or perversely, is it actually an element of state-on-state -state competition that might help keep us out of violent conflict? Are we, as some scholars suggest, ignorant and naive? ignorant of our history and naive of our competitors. I encourage you to think deeply on these questions because to return to Trotsky, while right now and in the war of 2025, you may not be interested in political warfare. Political warfare is most certainly interested in you. Thank you very much. Next up, Danielle Cave speaks with Elise Thomas and Marley Walker from our Cyber Centre to discuss their latest research, which combined open source data with the collection and analysis of new satellite imagery to assess the current status of settlements in northern Rakhine State, Myanmar, which were burned, damaged or destroyed in 2017. Hi everyone, I'm here with Elise and Marley and we launched a really big Myanmar Rakhine State satellite mapping project. So I'm going to throw over to these two to explain it to us. Elise, can you run us through this big project that we put online last week? Sure. So what we did for this project is we took the data that was collected by the UN Satellite Agency in 2017 and 2018 of the, the Rohingya settlements which were either burned, destroyed or partially destroyed in late 2017 by the Myanmar government. That was a crackdown which displaced almost a million in Rohingya people, uh, many of whom fled over the border into Bangladesh. And so what we did in this project is we, we looked at the current status of those settlements and assessed whether they were ready to provide a um, sustainable, safe and dignified return for the Rohingya refugees from Bangladesh. What we found does not support assertions that conditions are ripe in Rakhine State for, for a safe return for the Rohingya people. So Marley, could you talk us through how you guys did this project? So there were two of you and then there was Nathan as well, who's our satellite specialist. So how did you sort of divvy up the tasks and how did you decide what to look at? So Nathan is the satellite specialist and he uh, taught Elise and I how to use satellite imagery. Uh, so we used a combination of Google Earth and some um, commercial satellite imagery and we use the coordinates provided by the UN uh, satellite agency's data and then we used a combination of these different satellite sources to find the most up-to-date imagery that we could and then we sort of cat categorized them as um, if they were just left burnt and damaged or if they had in fact been raised um, and then if we saw signs of reconstruction, we noted if that construction was military construction or if it was construction of camps and if it was residential construction, but we saw very little residential construction. 
And was it hard learning, you know, being taught by Nathan to do this? Did you guys find it difficult? Did you pick it up quite quickly? We had a lot of practice because there were 392 settlements. Um, so that did give us plenty of opportunities. I think we picked it up reasonably quickly. Um, and, and Nathan was great teaching us how to do it and teaching us um, the differences between the different kinds of commercial imagery that we use. For example, some take images every day, some take images only sporadically. Um, there are sort of decisions you make about sort of, yeah, which, which is the most appropriate service to use for which application, I guess. And I think it also one of the one of the things we actually found reasonably complicated was telling the difference between burned and raised, hmm. um, particularly because so it sort of has to do with the, the amount of shadow that you get mm. from the vegetation. And the problem is, of course, now that we are sort of coming up towards two years after the crackdown, some of that vegetation has really regrown. Mm. So that was actually um, one of the, the things that you don't really think about before mm. you start um, trying to guess how tall trees are. Mm. Yeah. And sometimes it was a case of balancing up. Do you want like more recent imagery, but quite low quality or slightly older imagery, but higher quality? And um, that was definitely something we had to decide. So separate to the set light imagery component, there were a whole range of other themes that you all looked at. Uh, you looked at internet shutdowns and sort of disruptions to communications technology. You looked at sort of some of the laws, the land laws in Myanmar and how that uh, affected things. Could you both talk us through some of the different themes that you each focused on? I can talk briefly about the internet shutdowns. So there's been an internet shutdown in uh, parts of Rakhine and neighbouring Chin State uh, for about five weeks now. And um, this, along with the fact that uh, very few sort of multilateral agencies or journalists can enter Rakhine means it's really hard to get accurate information out of Rakhine and to actually know what's happening. Um, so that was a big motivation for doing this project and that we could use satellite imagery to see a lot of stuff that people can't see on the ground. Um, so in terms of what we looked at the laws, so um, in the past, over the past, I guess, 18 months, the Myanmar government has passed a series of amendments to a law called the Vacant Fellow and Virgin Lands Act. Um, and essentially what that act does is it allows the government to claim control of lands which are deemed to be vacant, fallow or virgin, which unfortunately include the lands on which a lot of ethnic minorities are living, including the Rohingya refugees. Um, and so what, what that amendment did was it created a six-month period within which people could register their land in order to have it not be deemed vacant, fallow or virgin. Um, obviously, during that six-month period, thousands and thousands of Rohingya people were in Bangladesh and were un unable to register their land. And even the, the remaining Rohingya in Rakhine State, their freedom of movement is very, very limited. Um, and many of them were also unable to register their land. And so effectively, what that means and what the, the complete lack of reconstruction on over 80% of the villages that we looked at um, implies is that the, the Myanmar government may claim control of the land, um, which makes it obviously very, very difficult for the Rohingya to, to see a path to a safe or a sustainable return. And how have you all felt about the international, I guess, attention after this report? It's received a lot of media. We can see that it's being picked up by different governments around the world in sort of parliament question time. It's, you know, the UN has started a number of times. Were you expecting it to get this much global attention? Um, I'm, I'm really, really pleased with the reaction. Um, I'm, I'm very glad. So far, we've, we've, actually not heard anybody criticize the report in terms of its sort of factual basis pretty even unusual. if they were yeah even if they weren't necessarily happy with what we said they haven't said that we were wrong um, which I think is a really positive thing and sort of a, um, a testament I guess to, to the great work that Nathan and Marley um, and, and I have done on this report I am really pleased that we've sort of managed to get it in at this crucial time as well when sort of policymakers are making really significant decisions about whether or not to send 
the Rohingya refugees back in, I think September is the date that I've heard for, for a planned repatriation. So I think it's really great that we've managed to get this out now. And I also think, you know, as much as our findings may be quite um, disturbing and quite distressing in some respects, um, I think it's better to know than to not know. Mm. Um, so from my perspective, that's, that's kind of mm. how I feel. And I think another really exciting thing, as well as being um, the report was mentioned in really big places like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, it was also reported um, in Myanmar in Burmese language. And that's important that, you know, people within Myanmar will also be reading about the report. Congratulations to both of you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. That's all for this episode. As always, you can leave us a review on iTunes or tweet us at aspie underscore org. See you in two weeks.